Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Apuha. <laughs> Tamson I... and Dan read the paper January 10th, I thought I gave 2021. Little... I thought I gave a little something there, no? no yes, no. apparently. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm not sure what that means, <laughs> but uh, let's hope it bodes positively. Yeah, I'm sure it will. For this show. Listen, I needed a break. There's only so many football games a man can watch. And the NFL is testing that this weekend with six playoff games. Four down, two to go. Well, you seem into it. You're screaming a lot. Even though you have no dog in this race. Uh, I sort of do, but uh, leave it. Well, you're in a pool. In a pool. But no beloved uh, team to root for. No, the teams I are really interested in couldn't, of course, by definition, are not good enough to make the playoffs. (laughs) There's no issue there. But, uh, yeah, so we, we've been watching other things. Now. Let's put the football aside, much as I know you'd be happy to talk about that. Well, we've been doing other things besides watching TV, even oh. though it's ridiculously cold. You know cold. what we did that might be worth mentioning? What? Go we, ahead. Uh, what, what's that called again? Pickleball. Pickleball, that's what it's called. We went pickleball playing. Anybody uh, out there familiar with pickleball? I think the expression is pickleballing. We're pickle- pickleballing. I'm not sure about that. I like the way, I like the ring to it. Really? Yes. Uh, keep that between us. Uh, I don't think I would go there. But we went to a pickleball facility. We can agree okay. on that. With uh, Grander and his wife. With uh, no Nico. heat. With no heat. It was, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. a little bit of heat, but it was a large space. It was kind of chilly. People were wearing jackets. And we played pickleball, which is a difficult game to describe. No, it's not. It's like, uh, it's like mini ball. tennis mini with tennis. a wiffle ball instead of a tennis ball. Right. And an oversized ping pong racket. Uh, and so it's less running than tennis and frankly a little less skill than tennis. But uh, it's fun. Yes. It's fun. Yes. We had a good, we'll probably have more to say about pickleball. We just went to the... See, you've played a lot of tennis. I've played a lot of tennis. but I was And really I played zero tennis. Right, right. And yet we both seemed to enjoy it. Yeah, we did. We did. We had a good time. Well, more to say in the future. We only went to the uh, beginner's class, but we clearly are beyond that level now. So Seems to be a big thing in places like Florida. Yes, it's been big in Florida for a while. But, but it's cold. <laughs> well, it's not so cold in Florida. And uh, no, it was, it was good. It's, it's, it's a way, it's, as I said, it's sort of like tennis light. Uh, and it's fun. You get into yes. it. And you have many people in your family who play it, as it turns out. Uh, your brother Michael plays. A tennis player. His sons, Ryan and Sean, Both play. tennis players, yes. And, yeah. and in Florida. Tennis players and in Florida. It's inevitable yeah. that they play pickleball. And so Granger and Nico started playing. Nico yeah. has a lot of family members who play down yeah. in Florida. You know, I think it started so, as something that uh, in retirement communities uh, embraced, but I, it's certainly broader than that now. Uh, but uh, it's fun. It's fun. Uh, so anyway, that was good. So it's nice to play a game where you get sufficiently involved, even though it's not cutthroat. It's highly competitive, and uh, you forget everything else on your mind for a while, and you're just carried away. Let's face experience. it. It's great to do something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. So if, if you, there's a pickleball facility in the area, find it, wherever you are, and uh, try it. You'll, you'll it enjoy it. Give it a shot. Uh, so in, in terms of television... Uh, other than football, I just wanted to mark that uh, we just finished the first season of a series that we want to recommend, and that's Sneaky Pete. Yes. Sneaky Pete, which is a show that was originated by a fellow named David Shore and Brian Cranston, who's, of course, a well-known actor, famous for Breaking Bad, uh, and, of course, was on Broadway with uh, Network. Um, 
and he appears in it also. The star of it, though, is not Cranston, but a fellow named Giovanni Rabisi, who plays uh, an ex-con, a fellow released from prison, who assumes the identity of his cellmate uh, in order to have a base of operations to deal with some difficult situations that he has to... For a con, he needs to pull. For a con, yeah. He's a con man. That's the point that you got in there, which is the key point. He's a con man. And that's what makes it interesting, because everything's a con. Every episode, something's going on. People are pretending to be what they're not. This is probably the last show I'd be interested in. Nothing about it attracted me. I think what you mean to say is the last show you'd be likely to be interested in, but you were found yourself interested. It took me a while. But? Um, But I loved it. Yeah. Well, that's what we want to get and, across. And yeah. uh, it just goes back to my old theme that you you just can't tell based on the plot yeah. what might be a riveting show. Right. Okay, just just because nothing about it engages you on a on certain a surface. level. On the surface. Um, doesn't mean... And I come to this again and again and again. Yeah. I eventually got into Queen's Gambit. Right. And, uh, you know, and uh, I got into Sneaky Pete as well. Yeah, Gary Haji, you got into too. I mean, again, not something you would think you'd get into. So, uh, yeah. Uh, so we recommend, uh, we recommend it. We recommend Sneaky Pete. Yeah, we're going, we're going to watch some of the other seasons, but we'll see if it maintains yes, that it's level. It's only got like three seasons, but we saw season one and we can say it was a satisfactory conclusion. So it was Very worth often the, the subsequent seasons are not as good. Well, we'll the only out. one, that, the only exception to that rule, in my mind, is Shit's Creek. Shit's Creek, of course. Yeah. Which is more like, even though it has a, a storyline, yeah. it's more like little bites, little, yeah. you know, ensemble performances. And uh, they seem to have just gotten better and better yeah. as time went by. Yeah. But, you know, it, it also it differs from the other things we were talking about, which are a little more suspense-oriented. And, uh, you know, Schitt's Creek is just comic and character-driven, but it's very good. Very good. So, anyway, you found something that... Uh, uh, what's it Captured by Fancy. Captured your fancy. It's called... Uh... Here's here's the uh, headline in the New York Times. Shakespeare, Swing, and Satchmo, but a flop. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a headline. Um, so that was uh, a show, obviously, that uh, didn't make it. Uh, and I had uh, just overlooked it. I, I didn't really read about it. How could you overlook it? There's a huge picture. Satchmo, Louis Armstrong, yeah. is in a dress. Yeah. I don't Not know really a dress. He's in a costume. Yeah, it's... Um, and it's and immediately I zeroed in. And I, I'm looking at it. Slip by me. I, I'm looking, I said, that looks like Louis Armstrong. But what the heck is the deal? And uh, yeah. indeed, it is a story about a um, a musical that was on Broadway in 1939, and it was a kind of jazzy take. It was called Swingin' the Dream, and it was a jazzy musical version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, God. Hmm. And it had an integrated cast, mm-hmm. okay, including Louis Armstrong, okay, uh, Butterfly McQueen, Ooh. also from uh, Gone with the Wind, Oscar Polk, also Moms Mabley. Oh, my God. Uh, I didn't know Moms Mabley was that old. I, I didn't either. Well, she seemed terribly old when I saw her on TV in the uh, 60s and 70s, yeah. but uh, that's pretty old. 
uh, Maxine Sullivan, Dorothy Dandridge. Oh, wow. And the Benny Goodman Sextet uh, supplemented the pit musically. Wow. So Dorothy... I mean, it, it's, plus, plus, Agnes DeMille did the choreography. Oh, my God. The and sets were based on uh, Disney cartoons, yeah. and it had songs like Darn That Dream uh, from uh, Jimmy Van Heusen, hmm. Eddie DeLange. Now, um, you can't figure out why it was a failure. I, I, this comes up because there was a concert, a live concert that we missed. You could, um, you know, uh, watch it, uh, stream it mm-hmm. uh, last night. And it was a joint production of London's Young Vic Theater mm-hmm. and uh, something called and the New York Theater for a New Audience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the the way the director of the Young Vic, Kwame Kwai Arma, puts it, it's almost like kind of a murder mystery. The play was butchered by the press and somehow the body has disappeared. Okay. okay. I mean, it's... It sounds like a very interesting story and an interesting production. It also sounds like the kind of thing that encores would revive. Yeah, it could be. Could be. And you sort of wonder why didn't they give it a shot? I mean, clearly, I mean, it ran for like nine or ten days, yeah. um, and no one was really sure exactly what was wrong with it. Um, uh, but. Um, you know, interesting. Well, there are a lot of reasons things do or don't get revived. Sometimes you can't get the rights. Sometimes you can't get the full score. I don't know. But I, I see your point. I mean... Yeah, it's possible they, there's no uh, record of the book. Hmm. You know, maybe they couldn't get that. Um, because this uh, the production, uh, the um, article doesn't even have much information about the production that was being streamed. Hmm. It was called a, a concert. Hmm. But uh, it's still... You know, kind of a fascinating story. 1939. Hmm. And uh, interesting that... um, So the New York... uh, um, What's it called? Theater? um, Theater, New theater? New York Theater for New Audience. Yeah, right. uh, Their mission is to present Shakespeare and other classics Hmm. to a modern audience. Sounds familiar. Yes, yes. And uh, it's actually their current location... Out in uh, Brooklyn, hmm. um, but uh, you know, how did this slip by all of us so that we've never heard of it? I mean, anyway, anyway, I mean, "Darn That Dream" is a song that I'm not that fond of, but it's a very <laughs> popular song, and uh, many uh, great sultry voices have recorded oh, yeah, it. It's, Nancy it's, Wilson, it's a and standard. Sarah Vaughan, it's a standard, yeah. Ella, and all these people. All right, well, that's interesting. It is very interesting, and it's worth just seeing. Uh, Satchmo in the Shakespeare Shakespeare uh, that, gear. That's a mixed blessing, honestly. But uh, okay, um, yeah. So I I was once wanted to talk briefly about something that just kind of startled me. Everyone's very excited about Tesla, and the stock keeps going up and up and up. It can't fail. It's uh, the future, and uh, it turns out maybe not. Um, there are two uh, articles that really bear on that. One is an article in the journal called "This Battery Startup." might zap Tesla. And it's very simple and straightforward in that the uh, Tesla uh, really uses a battery with a liquid electrolyte that carries lithium ions back and forth between the cathode and the anode during charging and discharging. So it's liquid. That's the key word. 
Well, there's another company out there called QuantumScape is developing a so-called solid-state battery. And uh, the solid-state battery uh, has a lot of advantages. It's, it's made of uh, lithium metal cells. Uh, I don't have to go into greater detail. We're not going to be able to make one on our own. But the fact of the matter is that uh, the solid-state battery has the promise of uh, having electrical vehicles that will, have, will longer hold the charge uh, lower the cost of batteries um, and uh, be a, a huge technological advantage. Even um, longer life expectancy, rapid charging, etc., etc., etc. The problem is the solid state batteries aren't ready yet. They might not be ready for a few years, but when they are, they're going to uh, blow. They're going to yeah the lithium ion batteries out of the water. Yes, and if that's true, Tesla's in deep trouble because there are uh, obviously by now there's a range of electric car makers. A lot of them could put in a solid-state battery. Uh, Tesla can't. The way it's designed, it just can't. And uh, if suddenly this becomes uh, the technology that's considered the superior technology, uh, the Tesla folks are going to be out of luck. Um, again, not for a few years. Uh, obviously, Musk has, asked, has been asked about it. Obviously, he says, oh, no, that will never work. Uh, we'll see. But And similarly, there was an article... Uh, called The Lonely Gospel of Hydrogen Power about a guy uh, who proselytizes for the use of uh, hydrogen batteries. Yeah, that just sounds scary. Yeah, well, that's what's holding it back. I think of hydrogen bomb. Well, you know the hydrogen, they think uh, about the the blimps, the dirigibles, and and blowing up. That that gets people nervous. In fact, though, there are... um, uh, What do we have here? In California... Of course, that's the, always the example. Uh, there are a whole bunch. Of, there are eight or nine thousand electric cars that ride on, run on hydrogen cells, and a whole bunch of buses. In the East Coast, there isn't because of the concern that you reflected there a moment ago, and people are too nervous, and it's not allowed on the East Coast. So the only one hydrogen car on the East Coast belongs to this fellow, Mike Strisky, who's the guy who's proselytizing for hydrogen power. Um, he claims, and some other people do claim that the hydrogen um, battery is far, far superior than anything in the market today. It's made of... Uh, hydrogen's very easy to develop. Uh, Apparently, he makes his own. He makes his own. He makes his own hydrogen. He makes his own cells. It's some kind of solar technology. Yeah. It's and so crazy. It's simple to do. And here's the thing. And uh, I it's say this... It's simple to do. I say this because... Uh, <laughs> it's simple Z if job. you're a, you know... An engineer with the, uh, right. you know. Although this guy barely went to college, honestly. He did, it's all learning by doing with him. But, but, uh, Zeke, for example, has one of these plug in hybrids. The range on a plug in hybrid is 29 miles. Now, you might say that's nothing. In fact, it works because very rarely do people take trips, uh, especially these days, beyond 29 miles. Well, this is a plug in. You right. just plug, plug it in hybrid, at right. your house, right? right? You know. And, and if you got uh, a Tesla, your, your range is 270 miles or something mm-hmm. like that. The uh, range is, for a hydrogen car is well over a thousand miles, right. so you see the promise there. So in any event, that's the risk you take. I mean, everybody's uh, sort of uh, celebrating Tesla as the coming thing, but the truth is, if you're out there with new technology, the coming thing might be the thing for only a relatively short time, and it might be surpassed. And you can see that happening with Tesla. I'm just a uh, word to the wise, a little investment advice. Keep your for eyes you. open. Exactly, yeah. without putting a lot of money into Tesla. Okay, so, ding, 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 fresco update. Oh, good. 
there's an article. It's a good thing I love frescoes because there's an article about frescoes in the New York Times just uh, every other week. It seems to me constantly. Yes. The Times there's always a fresco, fresco in danger. Yes. Okay, so frescoes. Uh, fresco fresco, <laughs> frescoes date from a time, you know, I mean, they go way, 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 way yeah, back. It's, right. a, it's a wall painting. Right. Okay? Course, yeah. So we didn't have movies. We didn't have billboards, you know, and big, giant paintings were a way of telling a story. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, they, uh, they have some cachet and they're huge and this can be a problem uh and uh, one of the latest problems is a fresco by diego rivera called the making of a fresco showing the building of a city kind of a story within a story kind mm-hmm. of thing yeah and uh that's at the san francisco art institute right and it was painted in 1931 right. and uh and you know it was one of the you know just several um, in situ frescoes in the San Francisco area. And um, actually, the um, Art Institute has been struggling financially. Right. And there are rumors that they might sell mm. this giant fresco, which is, which is huge. It tells, it has, it shows people painting a painting of, you know, building a city with girders right. and designers and right. and things like that, and you and you see the rear of uh, Rivera, um, you know, um, directing the painting oh, really? uh, yeah. within it. So it, it's quite interesting. And of course, the Art Institute, um, well, they were they had defaulted on some on their, uh, their loans, probably loan payments, yeah. and uh, the the property was about to be sold. And I guess um, the UC came in and, you know, I guess covered the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So now uh, San Francisco Art Institute has to pay them. Right. If they don't pay them, you know, uh, who knows Curtains. Uh, what's going to happen. But that was just a few million bucks. They say that if they were to sell... They, I mean, they say. Museum, right. Um, if they were to sell the fresco to someone else, uh, interested parties include George Lucas yeah. for the Lucas Museum of Narrative Art. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see how this would fit in. It's, um, it could clear like $50 million. Yes, five dollars, $50 million. Which would go a long way to paying some bills. Yeah. Um, so, but people are up in arms. They say, you know... Uh, this, you know, the Institute is in trouble because of the way it operates, all right, and just to, you know, sacrifice part of its um, legacy, its heritage, yeah, but its that's, essence, yeah, we've heard that uh, to before, cover right? some bills, yeah. seems, uh, you know, well, look, ridiculous. We, we, we were talking about these kind of things every once in a while. We, we have a situation like this and in the pandemic much more often, right? Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? Uh, they right, but they it. claim they would never do that. Mm, that's true. Until and they, they you it. know, in, in the past, yeah. uh, when they've had financial, I mean, they have gotten significant donations. Yeah. They just look. I don't know their can't. their situation. Uh, it's tough times. It's tough times. Yeah, fifty uh, million is for uh, uh, art. That's what it takes for all schools. If that's moment, what so. it takes. That's what you got to do. All right. So there are a few articles about cars during this strange pandemic time uh and one of them is there's a rise in car thefts it says no hot wire needed it turns out that a combination of the pandemic and new technology with respect to car sorting 
has led to a rise in car thefts. How so, you ask? Well, uh, two ways. One is in the pandemic, uh, people apparently uh, are prone to leaving the car running while they go out to make a delivery or to make a quick stop or whatever they're doing in a way they didn't do that previously. Uh, it turns out... Well, that, what, that's okay. But I mean, a lot of... There are people who have done that. Apparently it's happening always. more often. Okay. And it's resulting in a lot more car thefts, uh, according to the New York Times. And, at the, and it, on top of that... People are using the key fob, which means you don't have to turn the key. You just have the keys in the air. You press the button, your car starts. Well, uh, that sounds like an advanced technology that might be a safety measure, except that what people are doing is they're keeping uh, their key in the cup holder. Or if they're very safety-minded, yeah, in the car, or they put it in the glove compartment. Well, when we park yeah. in a lot, yeah. they say just put it in the cup holder. Yeah, great which idea. Which always strikes me as scary. It's scary, dumb. And dumb I, is the I assume that when we're in the lot, they take it and put it in their little... I don't... What lot are we talking about? The, when we park back in the old days, when we would go into New York... Oh, in the theater, New York, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about on the street. People are going on the street or in their driveway... Or leaving the key fob in the cup holder right. or in the glove compartment, which means anybody can walk in and press the button and I don't drive their car that away. At all. No, but it's happening. So there's, they gave an example of uh, they have one situation. Uh, well, they have statistics. I don't have to give you that. That just proves their point. But they give us describe, describe a particular instance where in Hartford, November 18th, uh, the police pull over a Volvo, uh, which is zipping erratically. It's a 17 year old who had been driving the car that reported stolen earlier that day. He was issued a summons. He was released. Hours later, Hartford officers pulled over a Ford Explorer. Behind the wheel was a familiar face, the same 17-year-old in another stolen car. Well, they say that in California, the article says, people use it instead of Uber. Instead of Uber. Right. Oh, they all say it's you a just safety measure. A car. Also, people don't want to use mass transit. They feel safer to, to get into a car, car and steal to borrow it. Borrow uh, yeah. a car. All right. So it's summed up well by the Hartford Police Department, which says, "quote This is a very stupid problem to have," and uh, it is. So anyway, that's odd. What's uh, a little more serious, but still odd to me, is that there has been a high number of people dying of. Um, Car crashes, uh, disproportionately, given the amount of miles that are being driven these days, you would think all accidents would be down. Right. Well, in proportion to the miles that are driven, fatal crashes are up, substantially up. Why is that? Because uh, uh, according to this analyst, Bob Pichu with Inrix, uh, he says on less congested roads, you get fewer collisions, but the collisions you do have are more severe. People are speeding. And they have some statistics here about a lot of instances way out of the ordinary of cars that are being clocked at over 100 miles per hour. Uh, and the result is um, they're getting many more fatal crashes. Uh, again, uh, as the result of the pandemic. So uh, it's all kind of weird. I mean, um, guy knows cars can go that fast. Uh, there was an article about the new BMW M440, and written by our favorite uh, car writer, Dan Neal, in the Wall Street Journal. And, uh, you know, I just happen to like the way he writes. So uh, we're not going to talk about the serious problem of car crashes now. But talk about speed. You know, he's writing about the new grill, the new BMW, which he says is fearsome, makes a striking uh, vision. Uh, BMW design is frequently just ahead of public taste, so it's innovative. And here's his description. 
He said, behind those nostrils, this is BMW's nostrils, breathes a turbocharged 3.0 liter inline six with an uber fancy computerized valve train, fully variable valve timing and cam phasing and high pressure fuel injection. Lusty and gusty with a 7,000 redline and effectively flat torque curve, the turbo six is an all-star, a rupturing hydrant of twist, zero to 60, 4.3 seconds, and then it's a brisk Bavarian elevator up to where they take your fingerprints and your picture. So there you go. Another car to speed in. I like the way he writes because he uses language like they do in, in The Patriot, where they're talking about uh, how things get transferred from A to B, and it's all this jargon. Mm-hmm. The man really writes jargon. So in any event, enough about cars. Bring us back to something that's more real. Go ahead. Well, back to TV. Oh, Okay. Um, or something something to watch on TV, yeah. uh, a series featuring Fran Lebowitz and directed by Martin Scorsese. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, art- the article in the New York Times is titled More of Her Metropolitan Life. So you know Fran Lebowitz, sure. author, humorist, raconteur, and, uh, of course, Martin Scorsese, filmmaker. Turns out they are friends. Yes. They, they've been that friends know. a long had time. Had no idea. No friends idea. Friends a long time. And uh, they don't know how they met. Well, uh, they figure it out. They figure it out in the They article. must have met at some party. At some party. And, you know, she, she points out, she says, she goes to a lot of parties. He says he doesn't go to that many. She says, that's why uh, you've made a lot of movies and I've written very few books. Right. Um, so, uh, um, anyway. So, this is a film uh, that, uh, you know, they started working on it before the pandemic. It's called, or it's a series, actually, yes. called Pretend It's a City. Right. All right. So I'll just skip ahead and tell you the name comes from back in the days uh, when uh, Leibowitz would, you know, be walking around a very busy New York and come across, you know, a group, yeah. probably of tourists, uh, kind of you know, standing in the middle of the sidewalk, blocking all progress. And I would yell at them. She said, move, pretend it's a city. Yeah, it and, sounds like you know, We've all had that feeling. Yeah. It's like, don't you people understand? We're trying to get places, yeah. all right? Go over to the side if you have to figure out where right, you are. Right. Um, but uh, so she is pretty, she's funny. She's acerbic. How else would you describe her? Well, she's a person who could only exist in New York City, I think. Right, right. I, you can't think of anything. I mean, she's a little bit of a throwback. She's a little bit like Oscar Levant, really. Yeah. The female equivalent. She's a, a, and so this, uh, she shares stories about her life, insights about the city's constant evolution, strolling uh, through New York, live appearances, interviews, etc. She explains, I don't care. Whether people agree with yeah. me or not, my feeling is if someone doesn't agree with me, okay, you're wrong. That is one thing I've never worried about. Yeah. And uh, so I think that's fine. I always think it's more interesting to hear somebody just give yeah. their ideas, their feelings, and you can react to those well, right, things. Right, it's right, much right. less interesting to hear somebody say, well, it could be this way, it could be that way, and of course... It yeah, I think it. it could be fun to hear family boys talk. I, look, I, I think she's more of a figure at this point than a writer. Perhaps it's always been the case. But that's that's cool. And I think it's interesting. The series, you know, She said some one interesting thing uh, when they asked her uh, whether they think the city is going to be changed as a result of the pandemic. And she says there's not 
one square foot of this city that uh, hasn't changed completely, you know, in X since years, I came here since in I came 1970. In, yeah, the city's always changing. So that's not really worth right. discussing. Right. Uh, so, and she's she right says, about that. Uh, before the virus, uh, it was basically me complaining right. about the city. Now people see it with nostalgia. It's some kind of love letter. Um, but, but, uh, she, but she says there was plenty wrong in the city before. <laughs> and yes, so, yes. so and there, there's, a very, there's a fun picture of her uh, walking along, I don't know, the East River. Yeah. Or the, I don't know if it was the East River or the Hudson. Um, on She's on a sort of full-scale bird's-eye view mm-hmm. um, diorama thing mm-hmm. of uh, the city of New York at the Queens Museum. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said the, you know, the museum director was very nervous about her uh, walking around. Uh, in fact, she did knock over the Queensboro Bridge. Uh, but she didn't break it. She just knocked it I over. I just knocked it over. They put it back up. All right. Uh, so that's, so that's per- something to see. Pretend it's, it's, it's a, a city. city. I think it's Netflix, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah and it's it streaming now. Yeah. And uh, I don't know, you know, if it's uh, going to hold everybody's interest forever. Well, it's worth but checking it out. it might be fun. Uh, Scorsese you know, is to... a pretty brilliant guy. So yeah. uh, they probably have something going there. Um, so Tom Lasorda passed away. So Tom Lasorda is a baseball figure. I know you are I know you are familiar with Tom Lasorda, even though you don't chance call, yourself do you a big baseball you call him Tom or Tommy? I feel like hey, both. Tommy, Tommy I think is Tom's, where I've heard a lot. Well, I'm not that close. But in any event, Tom okay. was sort of, no, just... uh, and uh, was the manager of the Dodgers for years and years and years. And then he went into the front office, uh, became sort of an eminence grisé, uh, and more lately, as he got into his 80s, a figurehead, but he would show up and represent the Dodgers. And he, he used to talk about bleeding Dodger blue, and that when he passed, he'd go to the great Dodger in the sky and he has passed. Um, they do tell a story in the brief obituary in the journal that I had to comment on. And this, they said he could be, I don't know what their word for it, but this salty is the equivalent. He, he, he had his moments. And they referred to a moment that uh, he was interviewed after the Dodgers lost to the Mets. And uh, Dave Kingman had hit three home runs for the Mets. And a reporter said, was he, uh, you know, upset about that? And he said the reporter somewhat... Uh, he used profanity. He said, what do you think? Of course, I'm upset. So, in fact, that's not the real story. But the real story is funny. Uh, he, the real story is that, uh, well, Kingman did hit three home runs against the Dodgers. And Kingman was a guy who was a prodigious home run hitter. You remember Dave Kingman. Oh, sure. Yeah. He but, would either strike out or hit a home run. That's exactly right. And more often, he would strike out. But he was six foot six. He had a big, loopy swing. And he could hit a certain pitch, uh, which is a low outside strike, honestly. And the deal was, he's a mistake hitter. And what does that mean? This is literally inside baseball. Uh, he, he meant that you could pitch to him. If you stayed on the inner half of the plate, you could strike him out. But if you threw the ball outside in the strike zone, he would hit a home run. So he hit, quote, mistakes. Well, he had enough mistakes. He had 50 one year. And uh, against the Dodgers in this game, he had three mistakes. And that makes an an manager angry. So what happened was, and I watched that game. I was quite happy about it. And afterwards, uh, in the clubhouse, it wasn't just a matter of uh, Lasorda just, you know, using profanity of one reporter. He turned over the whole table of cold cuts the day after the game. He was ranting around the, the, the whole locker room. And then he went on a three-minute in profanity-laced tirade. Uh, apropos of nothing, it's talking about everything, just going crazy in the locker room. 
which uh, you didn't have YouTube then so much, but I heard enough of it. It's become sort of a famous rant. Um, so this just scratches the surface. And and yet, when you say to yourself, gee, if someone would have said at the time, gee, Tom, you're gonna be, this is what you're going to be remembered for, this, this is what they'll talk about in your obituary, everybody would have been horrified because he was a very accomplished manager. And that here it is, four-paragraph obituary, one paragraph is he got mad because Kingman hit home runs. So in any event, uh, that, was, that story reminded me of, of, of Tom and, and Dave Kingman. Um, there were a couple of other obituaries. Um, Michael Apted passed away. Uh, Michael Apted was uh, the guy who made those famous films called 7-Up, uh, 14-Up, 21-Up. And what that meant was that he filmed a bunch of uh, kids in the UK at the age of seven. Uh, and then that's about their life in various aspects. And then he followed it up when they were 14, when they were 21, and he had one, they were all on multiples of seven. So there were 63 is the last one he released in 2019. And, uh, he, um, he, he says in, in, in the, the article that's his obituary, they interviewed him and he had said that he thought he was really going to talk about class issues in Britain, but what he found he was doing there was, in a sense, uh, more profound to him, was that he just was dealing with people's normal lives and he got a chance to really chronicle what I'll call ordinary lives and the ordinary issues that you deal with, which are serious issues. And he was able to do this as they followed their lives. It was kind of interesting because he said in retrospect he wished he had had more female subjects. He had 14 kids, 10 male, 4 female. Mm -hmm. And he said the truth of the matter is, at the time that he did the first one, uh, men would have more interesting careers going forward than women. It was natural for him to have more men than women. He later regretted that, and he said so much so that he feels in his films he compensated for that by having films that emphasized female protagonists. And Coal Miner's Daughter. Coal Miner's Daughter, of, of course, uh, with Sissy Spacek playing Loretta Lynn. And uh, the other one that's worth mentioning is Gorillas in the Mist, which is a story of the naturalist uh, Dion Fossey. And uh, there were others besides. Um, and it's probably true. Uh, but anyway, I thought he was a very interesting guy. Okay. Yeah. You got more? Uh, I have one more. Uh, did you have I know one? this is not an obituary, but we were um, talking about Walter Tevis. Yes, Walter Tevis. Uh, a while ago, because, uh, you know, the with the big splash of Queen's Gambit, yeah. the most popular series, you know, like ever, yeah. until the next series. Until the next series, that's um, right, on Netflix, and then, right. Right. Um, and one of the things that happens in well, that, first, he wrote it. It's he wrote it. Yeah. He's the author of right. the book right. uh, that came out in the eighties. It was on the bestseller list. Right. Okay. And um, and he, you know, and he turns out he wrote a lot of books mm -hmm. that were movies. Yeah. Uh, wrote the Hustler. The Hustler. Yeah. Uh, Color of Money. Right. Uh, what was the other one? Man Who Fell to Earth. Mm, David right? Bowie, right. So uh, and these are all movies that even if you haven't seen them, you've heard of them, right? right? So you know how, how come we've never heard of Walter Tevis? Walter Tevis? So yeah, um, that was interesting to me. It was So the story of his life was pretty interesting, especially interesting because in watching Queen's Gambit, at a certain, at the beginning, she's in an orphanage and all the little girls in the orphanage are drugged, you know, to they're taking guess, pills. make they're, them... They're, they're issued pills on a regular they're basis. They're issued pills. And they're spaced out. Um, to make them manageable. More docile. Keep the, yeah. Right. And I said, is that possible? I, like on the, 
on the perimeters of my brain, it seems like well, you found that's it, something you, you found it very it. disturbing. You said it's almost well, it's hard to very watch. Disturbing, it. yeah. but it's not entirely impossible. Right. I thought I didn't research it, but it turns out it's based on uh, Walter Tavis's own experience. He right. wasn't an orphan, but his parents had left him in an institution. They moved from California to Tennessee or somewhere. And he had a heart condition. We, we need to know more about this. But because he had a heart condition, they left him in an institution. And in that institution, he was administered phenobarbital. Mm-hmm. And uh, he says that resulted in a lifetime of substance issues, both with drugs and alcohol. And I just, you know, your heart goes out to him. I mean, that, uh, what... Yeah, he's a strange guy. The way he was written about it, on the one hand, um, he was a great family man, and his kids were quoted about they had a great family life. He was also a professor. Right. And on the other hand, they talk about his lifelong struggles, particularly with drinking and his suicide attempts. Yeah. And and there was bad behavior. His his children will say, you know, he was a wonderful father, except he was not always wonderful. Yeah. kind of thing right um so so the, so that all that i found uh very interesting and i still think it's uh it's just uh, it's interesting that it took so many years like 40 years to make this series um because the studios kept turning well they said chess, down. chess films don't work right don't make money there aren't too many but uh, that wouldn't have uh, worked they found a way to do it yeah uh, all right, so finally, there was the obituary of Jerry Marsden, uh, a Liverpool rocker, as they describe here, and the voice of Jerry and the Pacemakers. And I can't say I remember Jerry and the Pacemakers, do you? Yeah. You do? Sure. Okay. Really? All right. Good for you. Uh, Jerry and the Pacemakers uh, were a group, a singing group, at the same time, uh, sort of the same time as the Fab Four, the Beatles. Uh, in Liverpool, uh, both groups in Liverpool, and apparently the pacemakers got off to a quicker start than the Beatles uh, and got up on the charts more quickly than the Beatles. And uh, uh, they had a debut single called How Do You Do It, which was uh, a chart topper, and then From Me to You. And here's what's interesting to me. Then they had something called I Like It, and their fourth, their fourth single, this is at the height of their popularity, was You'll Never Walk Alone. That I didn't know. Which is startling. Because the, You'll Never Walk Alone from is... From Carousel. Right. It's the Oscar Hammerstein song that is sung at when the end of Carousel. Right. There is, there, there is, there are a lot of dark things happen, particularly to this, uh, this young woman. She's graduating school, and she goes to her graduation ceremony, and in order to encourage and give some kind of spiritual uplift to the entire class of the kids graduating, the assembled clergy lead in singing You'll Never Walk Alone, an inspirational hymn, practically, right? Okay. Uh, and, and it's that, a hit? And it's, it was one of their big hits. So much so that when Mars... Two things. Uh, number one... Um, I mean, it was clearly a hit. Paul McCartney commented on Jerry Morrison's death because they were mates, as he put it. And uh, he said Jerry was a mate from early days in Liverpool. 
his unforgettable performances of You'll Never Walk Alone and another song called Ferry Cross the Mersey remain in people's hearts as reminders of a joyful time in British music. You see, You'll Never Walk Alone. And here's the strangest part. Not only that Jerry and the Pacemakers recorded this Oscar Hammerstein song in the early 60s, but that it was adopted as a main anthem for Liverpool football. And football being soccer, right? In the UK. And it was sung as uh, an inspiration in the, in the same way that Kate Smith would sing God Bless America before hockey games in the U.S. Well, I think it worked pretty well for the Mets or the Giants at this point. What? What? You'll did? never walk alone. You know, like going through dark times and there's, you know, sun at the end of Look, the... Look, when you, when you think of... But you think of the crowds, Liverpool Football Club, you know, it's, there's it's sort of a little bit of a cloud that's associated with how rough and tough the fans are. And sometimes there's violence in the stands. It's hard drinking. It's not the most easygoing group like us Mets fans, right? And yet, the whole stadium is often apparently joined in songs singing You'll Never Walk Alone. And sometimes Jerry Morrison would, would, would come out himself and sing it live in front of the group. And it was the Pacemaker's version that uh, they were singing along to all the time. I, to me, that's startling. Okay. So, uh, there you go. That's all I have. On that note, we got to go back to the football playoffs. Yes, we do. But, uh, this is inspirational. You'll never and we got to take down the Christmas decorations. Yes. Well, I think it's time. Uh, yeah, sure. But we'll be back next week. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. See you then. When you walk through a storm, hold your head up high and don't. Be afraid of the dark At the end of a stone There's a golden sky And the sweet silver sound of love Walk out.